Welcome to The Emergent Human, where we explore optimizing health and body spirituality and post-conventional living. I'm Michael Osterlink, a therapist, coach, and educator, and I'm your host. Today's show is brought to you by Cosper Scafidi, an amazing body worker in the Northern Virginia area who has integrated different somatic practices, including rolfing, into his work. You can learn more about him at CosperScafidi.com. Today's guests are Kurt Cronin and Jamie Will. From Navy SEAL Tier 1 operator to entrepreneur, Kurt has a track record of making the impossible possible. He sees around the corner to unlock potential. He creates an energetic force field of coherence for teams to drop into flow and high performance. Kurt received his MBA at Combined Programs from the London School of Economics, New York University's Stern School of Business, and the HEC School of Management in Paris. Kurt graduated fifth in his class from the United States Naval Academy, and has been awarded two Bronze Star Medals for Combat Valor and three Distinguished Meritorious Service Medals. He is married to his wife, Julia, and has five children. Jamie Will is the author of Recapture the Rapture, right here. God, Sex, and Death in a World that Has Lost Its Mind, and the Pulitzer Prize-nominated global bestseller, Stealing Fire. How Silicon Valley, Navy SEALs, and Maverick scientists are revolutionizing, revolutionizing the way we live and work. He is the founder of the Flow Genome Project, an international organization dedicated to research and training in human performance. He lives in the high Rocky Mountains in an off-grid cabin with his partner, Julie, two children, Lucas and Emma, and their golden retrievers. When not riding, he can be found mountain biking, kite surfing, and backcountry skiing. Good to see you, gentlemen. Nice to be here. Happy to be here. Thank you, Michael. Yeah, it's been quite a few months since we chatted. So for our viewing audience, they should walk away from this conversation with a few things, including knowing what meaning 1.0, 2.0, and 3.0 is, the connection between nit nitrous oxide and Churchill, Tibetan Tantricas. I love that story, by the way. <laughs> One, two, three of God. The difference between alchemists and addicts, BDMS and first responders from 9-11, ISIS and Christian fundamentalism, the relationship between the two, breath practices and non-ordinary states of consciousness, the relationship between Devgru and hash-smoking assassin cult from Persia a thousand years ago, clitoral orgasms, psilocybin and transcendent experiences, states to traits, and many other things. Wow, lots there, guys. So my question to start this conversation is, what questions are you seeking to answer with your work these days? As if that, that wasn't a decent enough starter list. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, there you go. I mean, the, the most important ones, you know, how do we live a life of meaning, you know, in the increasing uncertainty of today's era? You know, that, that for me is the one that's the most exciting, you know, intergenerationally, like, you know, for, for me, you know, for my children, you know, and for my children's children, really, is like, how, how do I create the principles, you know, and lessons and learnings to, you know, for, for me to evolve, but then to be able to take care of not just me, but expand that into, you know, my direct line in our community. Nice. <laughs> Jamie, same question? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think... I think I guess I'm thinking a lot about transition these days, sort of just personal, societal, economic, you name it. 
how do we do this thing? How do we navigate this bridge to a future that works for everybody? And, and, and sort of what, you know, in, in the book, we talk about kind of like the coming alive arc versus the staying alive arc, like coming alive is sort of infinite possibilities for myself and culture, society, and then staying alive is like, whoops, like diminishing choices, triage, what do we have to set aside um, in order to get hard things done quickly? And I think that dialectic between the coming alive of infinite fulfillment and possibility and the staying alive of whoops, the hour is late and choices we had on the chessboard 10 years ago, 50 years ago, may, may be no longer there, what's left. Um, that's very much an open inquiry for me. And it's even in, even in what we communicate in the world, like what's helpful now, because it feels like personal improvement and biohacking and state changing is so very 2015, <laughs> you know, and coming out of, <laughs> coming out of COVID and all these kinds of things, we're just like, whoa, there isn't, there's not a back to normal. We're not, we're not back in normal and we're probably not heading in that direction. Um, what does this new wobbly future look like and, and how do we, how do we help it um, stay on the tracks? Before we kind of uh, unpack what the wobbly future might look for us, and, I, and Kurt, I love the idea of like, oh, my kids, 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 you know, like way down the road, what, what kind of world do we, we want to create for them. Let's, let's take a moment to kind of look back at the past because you talked about meeting 1.0 and 2.0 and now moving towards 3.0, which is hopefully what you guys, you guys can make real. But what is 1.0 and 2.0 and why are they failing us today that we need a 3.0? Yeah, I mean, you know, it, the simplest way, these, these are all just arbitrary handrails for us to kind of reference stuff. But in general, meaning 1.0, you know, for most of human history, what was life, the universe and everything? Who am I? What's my place in the cosmos and society? How ought I act? Moral codes, all of those things were typically delivered by organized religions around the world. And, and they often offered salvation if you believe you're saved, you know, at the cost of inclusion. But if you want, if you didn't believe you were a non-believer, you were an apostate, a heretic, whatever, you didn't get the goods. So it was salvation at the cost of inclusion. And then, you know, depending on how you date it, the, the, you know, the English and then French Enlightenment, the kind of European Enlightenment of, of the sort of 17th century into the 18th century, that started being like, you know, hey, let's, you know, there's a lot of superstition, all the wars of religion, and, you know, let's get past that, let's get into rational imperialism, scientific materialism, but also civil society democracy. So that promised inclusion, all men and women are created equal, regardless of race, color or creed, those kinds of promises. Um, but, you know, at the cost of salvation, God was dead, as Nietzsche said. So, so there became that sense of like between those two, um, especially in the last century, but increasingly in the last decade, we've had a, a sort of a collapse in both faith um, in organized religion with the rise of the none of the above, the sort of, you know, the spiritual but not religious and those kind of communities for the first time in human history, which is a kind of interesting milestone to note, first time in human history that more people don't affiliate or identify with one of the big pillar churches, synagogues, mosques, et cetera, of their, of their background. They're just free agents. So that's never happened before. So, you know, and then you've got church scandals, the collapse in their sort of unassailable, infallible rightness. And so we've seen that huge um, sagging of faith on the traditional side. And, 
more than ever, especially since 2008. And I would say it probably doubled in the last 14 months. Um, a deep suspicion and interrogation of late stage capitalism, of effectively kind of the globalist neoliberal experiment or promise. The whole trickle down economics didn't work, the whole deregulate everything and NAFTA and you know EU and all these things or WHO and CDC, like no, fuck it. People are saying that sucks, that's a bill of goods, K-shape recovery, one percenters, 0.001 percenters are getting it all. We've all been robbed. Let's burn it down. Right? So so the places we used to go to reorient, to make sense of things, to find meaning, purpose and coherence and even direction for our lives those have kind of cracked and even are, you know, sagging to the point of collapse. And so a meaning 3.0, which is we don't have one yet, but, you know, certainly that book is a, is a provisional roadmap or thought experiment is, can we take the best of both? And can we create inclusive salvation? Is there a way to do that for everyone on the planet and do it in a way that doesn't succumb to the pitfalls of either, either dogmatism and doctrine from the meaning one point of the side, or, um, I mean, God knows what the list is long on the, <laughs> the neoliberal critique. So I take your pick, but let's just, <laughs> let's just say, um, trashing the commons, um, as a minimum on that side, can we, can we actually, can we include everybody without breaking the bank of natural resources, food, space, air, water. Right on. So let me ask you, Kurt, and this is kind of more biographical for the both of you. And one of the things I heard you say, Jamie, is oh, biohacking with so 215, change, state changes, et cetera, et cetera. I'm curious for both of you, but let me start with you, Kurt. When did you first begin to wake up to the limitations of one and two and the recognition that we need something new, which would be transcendent and include, I would imagine, the best of uh, meaning 1.0 and 2.0 to create something new? And it's not just about, oh, flow state changes or state changes or psychedelics. It's not just about an individual changing his state. It's about we need something much more global than that. Yeah, I would say it's a continuous, gradual process for me. Um, you know, starting with the first time you go into combat, the, the world you know becomes um, you realize quickly like, hey, this could, you know, every single time the the aircraft left the United States of America, my assumption was I was dead, right? Because I, I knew that that if I had limited resources, I wanted to be able to be fully engaged in, in what was incurring in front of me because my greatest fear is if I didn't act fast enough, someone else under my leadership would die. And so so for me, it started with the progression of, oh, like I need to be fully present and fully inclusive. I mean, the, the most appropriate nickname, I think, that I've ever heard you know, for the SEALs is team guy. And that is the greatest superpower of the teams is that it is never about the individual. It's about the collective. It's about functioning as one. And, and you know, all, all seals are fundamentally flawed humans, just like the rest of us, but you can do extraordinary components because you have the strength of each person then becomes the strength of the team and it compensates for each other's weaknesses. And so for me, like that's where that, that brotherhood of inclusivity. And like my, my favorite moment was always that moment in the desert when the rotors were spinning up, you know, and, and you kind of get on board the helicopter and of course there's wind everywhere and you can, you know, you can't really hear anything, but you look across the helicopter and look right at them. But then you'd have to, of course, pick up and have your night vision 45 degrees off and you quick head nod. You know, and that meant my life and yours and yours and mine. For me, that, that sense of community was the component that was the most exciting and 
exhilarating component that allowed you just like every night when he took off and say, Kurt, you know, do you have any idea what you're going to do tonight? You're like, no, because the enemy always gets a vote. But like, are you certain you can take on anything? The answer is absolutely, because the team was completely aligned and each person was in full surrender to each other that the, the collective was what we were going for. And it was never about the individual anymore. For me, that was the progression is, as I came out of the military and looked at, at the business world and looked at you know the, the civilian world, I was like, okay, how do we bring that type of community and communitas to the greater community? Because that's what I continuously see is people feeling the illusion of being alone or that they're individuals and not part of that collective. And that's the most challenging part of the transition for, for military. And for me, it's the, the exciting component of how do you create that, that, you know, magical team again. Nice. Thank you, Gert. How about you, uh, Jamie? When did your awakenings begin and what were they about? Well, I, I contest the term, Senator. <laughs> so, <laughs> give me a, give me a different way in other than awakening. Cause that sounds a little pretentious for me. Okay, no, that's fine. So one of, the, one of the things I heard you say is can't just be about the individual, a sovereign individual biohacking themselves. That can, that's not going to save the world. That's not going to generate a new way for us to create uh, cohesion and coherence and, and survive, really. And not only survive, but thrive. Um, was there a particular time or series of times you were like, okay, I need to think much bigger in scale? It can't just be about this group of people I'm working with or that individual I'm working with. This has to be a global effort or much yeah. bigger than a smaller group of people. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think my my first kind of, you know, big aha kind of breakthrough experiences were in college and and found like, oh, wow, this is what life could be, full strength, bright light, you know, like possibility. And then I sort of was like, oh, well, Clearly, we're not the first to stumble into this. What, what is this? What, what are these experiences like? Where do they come from? What, what are the stories? Like, who the hell has done this before? Who, who are our um, elders and teachers and that kind of stuff? And, you know, everything from Paul Newman film, Cool Hand Luke, to Stranger in a Strange Land, to One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, you know, to Keezy's Life with the Pranksters, so Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test and all those. That, that was kind of the, the rabbit holes that I went down. And, and in every single one of those, you know, that bright light avatar person gets nailed. Like that's the story. It's the tragic hero again and again and again and again. And the more you look for it, you're like, this doesn't pencil out. You know, every single, I mean, it's Nietzsche again, right? He said that there, in truth, there was only one Christian and they nailed him to a tree. <laughs> you know, you're like, mm. so, so that sense of, wow, we have this overwhelmingly prominent and dominant archetype, at least in the Western tradition, of the sole person booting up, but creating an immune response in the society they attempt to help or bring that input message to. I mean, it's, it's Plato's allegory of the cave too, right? I mean, most people just kind of think of the shadow puppets and that kind of stuff. But like, for me, the line that kills me every time is like, and what happens, Glaucon, you know, it's a dialogue. And he's like, what happens when the dude who's climbed out of the cave broken his chains, stared at the sun, what happens when he comes back into the cave? Well, he's blind. And then what do the people do? They mock him, <laughs> you know? So like, so that to me was, was a, was a sort of Gordian knot. It was a cultural dead end. You're like, fuck, the tragic hero thing clearly doesn't work. Is there a path to the cosmic hero, right? That doesn't require that same 
sort of sad sacrifice every single time, utterly predictably. Doesn't require the annihilation of that individual. Is there some other way around this? And I would say that's probably that was you know a good couple of decades of inquiry <laughs> and 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 the notion of going from the second coming to an umpteenth coming, sharing the sort of the the cheat codes to um, the experience of accelerated heightened human development, and then making it utterly ordinary in a truly sort of crowdsource way, an open source way. Like it's all of us and none of us and, and none of us are special, but we're all exceptional. Kind of like what Co was describing about the teams, right? All flawed people, mm-hmm. but together mm-hmm. we do something spectacular. I guess that that's kind of, that was, that was the, I guess that was my best shot or best hope um, for a way to start just shifting the group out of just repeating that old tragic narrative. Are, are there any pop culture references these days or historical that reflect what you're saying? More cosmic approach? Because we are seemingly sto- story-driven or narrative-driven beings, and we like our heroes, we like our stories, et cetera, et cetera. And it seems to me like if there are stories that you could refer people to, I know we're creating new ones at this very moment, but you know, people like movies, they like TV shows, they like to read. Is there, besides your book, obviously, anything out there? What do you think, man? Well, I'm passionate about live stories. That's what I love about Broadway. And yeah, I, I find like Hades Town, right? And it's Greek mythology set in New Orleans, right? So like, you know, the ancient, you know, truths brought into a new environment with new song and carried forward, right? So that's the fun part about that long lineage of you know, a whole new generation that may not know, you know, that mythology now gets connected to it through, you know, a modern telling of it. So for me, like that, that's what's fun when you can see like the echoes, you know, and the lineage all the way through, but presented in a new way that now is resonant with the current audience. Hmm. I like that, because I'm reminded in your book, at least, Jamie, you talk about um, Star Wars, the whole series, and the Matrix. And it started out one way, and it's like by the end of both series, it's a completely different storytelling. Not as happy from like a binary perspective as they both started, because as you state in your book, you know, is it the red pill that awakens you? I can't remember red or blue. Yeah, yeah. Red. That every group thinks they are taking the red pill, and that every other group, not them, is taking the blue pill. As opposed to an original idea, is like you're either awake or you're not. There's not this multiverse of options. Um, so, you know, could you actually speak to that in terms of pop culture, like how you've seen using Star Wars or The Matrix as examples, the changes in our culture, which is leading up to some of the challenges that we're facing in terms of disintegration or less effectiveness of some of our cultures and systems, which creates the openness for 3.0 or the openness. And as you state, for some of these rapturous groups, whether it's ISIS, the Christian fundamentalist, singularity people or people heading to Mars are creating stories that lead some to save salvation and others to their doom. Yeah, I mean, I think the, a helpful way to think of it is, is um, the notion of like, we, we're probably not heading towards a singularity, like, like of, of any stripe, whether it's a techno-utopian one or it's a traditional religious one, like the idea that we're all marching to a nice and tidy story and that 99 of your stories are all wrong, but one of them is going to win and it's going to be, it's going to play out exactly like one of our good books says it's going to, is probably 
less likely to happen, I think, than a sort of intertwingularity. The idea that like we're getting sucked down the drain pipe of time and space. So everybody's end times and games are, are getting pulled together, swirled together, tangled and braided together. And we're seeing this very strange cross-wiring of metapoetics. So in the case of the Matrix, right, first 20 years of that story, you know, becoming this really you know, ubiquitous meme, take the red pill, etc. It was for anybody who was a free thinker or for a rebel. And it was a big tent, it was the big tent matrix, you know, and then 2016, Reddit, 4chan, those kind of things, you kind of get the incel guys being like, oh, you've been red pilled. And it really means that you live in a man hating, you know, gynocentric, you know, PC thought police world, and you're the hard pressed downtrodden ones, white guys. And that's getting red pilled. So that, you know, and then Kanye's even tweeting about it, and you know, all kinds of things. You're like, and then, and then, and people were like, wait a second, like now I can't say red pill and it means the same thing anymore, you know, or Steve Bannon saying, you know, evil's darkness is good, evil's good, like, you know, Satan's good, you know, Darth Vader's good, you know, and the Republicans, in fact, I think Northern Virginia are probably not far from you, right? They set up what they proudly called the Death Star of, of the Brad Pascal uh, social media engine. And you're like, wait, Ronald Reagan launched the Star Wars Initiative. I remember writing a book report on that thing in the second grade, you know, and, and he labeled the Soviets the evil empire. Like at that point, like U.S. was the rebels and all the baddies were, were, were Darth Vader and the evil empire. And then by, you know, 35 years later, you know, we're into a complete inversion. And those are, you know, those are relatively lighthearted and inconsequential examples, the Star Wars and the Matrix, right? But then you start getting into um, deeper stories with more momentum behind them, like true apocalypse stories of Christian Zionists, ISIS, you know, certain branches of Wahhabi Islam, those kind of things. And they're actually, you know, they have, they have potentially cataclysmic consequence. They're, they're impacting, directly impacting geopolitics. Um, and you get to the place of narrative confusion. And I think we're seeing it, we definitely saw it in the pandemic, um, where we can be looking at the same thing in the world, the same person or the same event, and we can both agree that that is a super duper important person or event. But then what we think they are, what role they're playing in our story, good guy, bad guy, you know, what you do, those kind of things is completely opposite. So is Bill Gates right? A really good guy who's paved the way for philanthropism. And he's actually inspired a ton of billionaires to give away half their money. And he's saving the world with the Gates Foundation and the initiative. Well, you know, he's a little tarnished lately, right? Like, so, so things have been getting a little, a little shadier on the decades and billions of dollars of cultivated PR and all those kinds of things. So people are like, well, wait, is he saving and helping the world? Or is he a secret supervillain trying to take it over? Is the deep state Right? Whose side are they on? Are they actually the true patriots who have been resisting a populist dismantling of democracy? Or are they the pedophilic satanic bad guys? You know, and you can just you could just look around and play that game all day long. I mean, I, the, the, the one that first prompted, I think this was like 2015, and I looked up Maitreya, like the Buddhist world teacher because there was somebody in Northern California that had claimed to be the new one. And I was like, oh shit, this is fascinating. Like who, what is this, right? Let me, let me just do a little Googling. And the Googling came out was Barack Obama is the Maitreya, you know? And then it was, but that, but the Maitreya is the false teacher and is actually the antichrist and it's Barack, right? So you're like, oh shit. So here you would have around the world, you know, Buddhist being like, yay, the Maitreya is coming. 
and you'd have Christian fundamentalists going, ah, the matriarch is coming, you know, and, and your good guy is our bad guy. And we're even going to tack that onto a current political figure, you know, which we already have strong feelings about, et cetera. So you're just like, oh shit. So we are, you know, the, the fancy term is epistemic collapse that we're just, our stories are no longer holding. And as we um, seek, I think, to sort of fill in the cast of characters, almost like sort of buzzword bingo, you know, you're, you're, we're sort of like lunging to cram characters into them. And you, you certainly see that in the QAnon phenomenon, right? Where there's, there's sort of, it's apophenia, it's excessive pattern recognition. So they're seeing yep. patterns where there aren't any, um, even to the point of like that Suez Canal tanker, and then they track the name of the tanker, and then the name of the holding company that owned the tanker was actually the same name that Hillary Clinton had used in a campaign for something, something, and then therefore inside the tanker must have been wow. sex traffic children and sex toys. Like, you know, and, and you just, you see that and you're just like, wow, okay, now um, we're, you know, we're effectively descending into apocalyptic, well, a scatesthesia the sense of the end time and apophenia, excess pattern recognition descending, you know, descending into paranoia or, or sort of almost schizophrenia. So Kurt, how do you personally, and you have five kids, a wife, lots of friends, how do you handle, deal with, approach, face what Jamie's talking about, the called epistemic collapse? Yeah, for me, it, yeah, when I was a plea with the Naval Academy, they called it, we're getting back to basics. Yeah, and for me, it's getting, what are the grounded principles that like, if you watched COVID and all these, you know, to me, like my, I kinesthetic, so I experientially feel as you watch people collapse all of the rules and infrastructures into what is the grounded truth that remains, right? And so for me, it's, where do we start, right? We start with, we are a community, right? We are a family. We are, you know, and it goes into what is your close-in tribe, right? So now it's like, and that's what, kind of what you're seeing. Like people go, okay, what's the tribe where I can now have my highest sense of trust? And then how do I find those superconductors and expand that back into a community, expand that, you know, back. And so, you know, for me, it's shrinking into where can you get grounded? And then how do I now expand back out as rapidly as possible? Because, you know, it, in any time in your combat operation or outdoors, like any time that if you're just cross the river and stream and you're, you're icy cold, the first thing you've got to do is self-help and get yourself back to the point where you can help others. And so it's not losing, oh, wow, I need to reground, right? And, and that's that's the component where now I can now serve first my, my kids and my family. And that gives me the lessons where I expand into my broader community. What are some of the principles that you fall back on to help guide you to to deal with this and then eventually expand beyond your family and community to the larger world around you? Yeah, see, the, the most powerful one is love, right? Love mm -hmm. and connection, right? The, the, and fighting against that illusion on stressful situations, that, that great fear that I'm alone. I'm the only one experiencing this, you know, and, and you, know, I can kind of feel my superpower or drain when I kind of get to that space. Right. And that's, that's kind of my indicator of like warning, warning, like, you know, need to reset, reground and like, how do you get back to the basic rituals of, I need to get some sleep. I then need to get, you know, oxygen. I need to get out in the outdoors. Right. And re and resetting so that I can I just like rebooting your computer. How do I now reset and then start again 
and and re-engage and like i love jamie and i play with like what's the 80 20 right like the hey i'm gonna spend that time recovering so that i can get back in a, in a peak state and you know back to contributing again and and for me i always find that who are the people i can go to to recharge right and it's like the 1.21 gigawatts right when i can plug in and say hey i need help now when i can plug in and i get re-energized and having that community is whether it's in the seals or in the civilian world is is the critical component of resetting and going okay yes all this too shall pass and how what what am i going to do next you talk in terms of resetting part of the reset is the reset of the nervous system the brain mind system you guys talk about hedonic engineering inspiration healing and connection and i like to take this conversation kind of in, in those directions and you know, as critical as you were, Jamie, of uh, the 2015, can't just all biohack our way out of it. You guys do spend a good amount of time helping people in the inspirational healing and connection space through different techniques and technologies. Some of them ancient. You talk about uh, was it neuroanthropology and some of the more modern sciences kind of coming together and giving us really cool tools, techniques, technologies and ways of changing states. Can we talk a little bit about those kind of things and how important it is for 3.0? Yeah, I mean, I think I think the simplest is is life's a bitch and then we die. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 and the in between the in between is, 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 a, is a toss to figure out. And so we can absolutely have really reliable access to amazing peak states of inspiration clarity, heightened information, pattern recognition, processing, all the things of awe, you know, ineffability, uh, spiritual experience, religious experience, whatever we would peak experience, take your pick of the, you know, the, the, the declensions, right? Um, and quite often those have been peddled. They've been commoditized or weaponized as ways to escape or bypass the human condition. And I think that almost always creates more suffering and problems if not for oneself at the minimum for cascades you know of externalities to others um but if you put those in the context of the life's a bitch and then we die so how do we do this thing without getting pile drived into the ground right standing tall you know like stretching our bones laying our burdens down for a moment with a peak experience is both you know emotionally and psychologically rejuvenating and affirming because the day-to-day -day can just, you know, it can grind us out. And then we're like, ah, yes, I, I remember. Here's this, here's this beautiful sunset. Here's a moment with my child. Here's an uplifting song. Here's a breakthrough, non-ordinary state experience, whatever it would be. And, and that often reminds us of what we might have forgotten. And that could be our deepest purpose. That could be some mission that could be some insight it could be an entrepreneurial breakthrough it could be a relational insight whatever it would be like things that i normally don't have access to in the day to day as i level up i can sort of gain access to read and read and write those files and so there's a huge amount of information and inspiration that comes and at the same time there's often kind of a printout of the places we're banged up broken the places we're out of integrity the amends and amends we need to make in our relation relating and we've got more gas in the tank now so we're like oh okay so i'm going to come back from down the mountain with a little bit more of a spring in my step and homework to do and it does it no longer seems so impossible or overwhelming and if we can and that's the catharsis so ecstasis is the greek term for the high ground catharsis would be the deep healing and the integration 
and we typically don't do it in a closet. We do it with others, right? And so both the, the peak bonding, and Kurt, I know you experienced this in not what would not normally be considered peak states, but in combat, right, mm -hmm. with, with team and, and, and that kind of connectivity, it's, it's a sort of three-legged stool of ecstasis, catharsis, and communitas, and sort of that's how we do this human thing. And if any one of them gets out of whack, right, if I'm just focusing on my personal growth and peak experiences and healing, but I'm not in connection with anybody, I'm almost certainly going to veer off into either inflationary ideas, magical thinking, or just sucking my thumb, you know, and self-soothing, whatever it would be. And if I and if I'm just with people doing to doing healing, you know, or or dealing it, reveling in the pain, but we have no higher inspiration, that gets out of balance. But if we have a nice equilateral triangle of those things, it becomes the flywheel that propels us forward through our lives, through history, and gives us a chance to sort of mend as we go remember what we forgot and forge connections with each other as the sort of as the tribal primates we are and it's also a really good course corrector because i might get high on my own supply i might think my shit doesn't stink you know and then all you need to do is come home and try a family dinner and you'll be like oh whoops <laughs> you know <laughs> not quite done yet um, i dropped a stitch damn it um and so that just feels to me like it's a beautifully balanced and grounded approach which is we don't get a happily ever after take it out of this mess. You know, the, the phrase we often use is, or we play with it never seems, never s ceases to lighten the load is that Zorba the Greek phrase of like, it's the full catastrophe, man. Like this life, the wife, the kids, the fishing boat, <laughs> you know, the full catastrophe. And like just that embrace of like the WYSIWYG, this is it. This is the human experience. We don't get to sit full lotus and levitate. We don't get to manifest everything on our dream board. You know, like, like it is what it is and that, that there's a profound beauty and, and empowerment to actually just accepting that unvarnished, unadorned, like, like, like the mystery of life doesn't require bells and whistles. It doesn't require being wrapped in cotton candy or emojis, you know, like it's gutting. It's absolutely gutting and it's profound. And, and, and let's get cracking. My favorite What's example, up? Michael, my favorite yeah, example please. is like last year in, in October, we dropped down into the canyons of Utah and it was at the height of the elections coming. And so, you know, the social media, like, yeah, you know, yeah. every feed everywhere. And it was one of those components where, and everyone's basically been in isolation and that was part of, you know, everyone's isolation. Then you flew there, took a COVID test. And then as we dropped in the canyon, take the masks off and it took about, you know, 90 seconds for 99 months of COVID just doo -doo -doo -doo, unwind and you could see people go, ah, now we're going deep into the canyon. Now we're in millions of years of rock and thousands of years of human history. And there was one night where we got to camp late, you know, and we we're just like, wow, humans have been doing this human thing for thousands of years. And all of a sudden, the events of the day don't have the same magnitude they did when compared you know, to that. And so all of a sudden, like the first thing in the morning, you wake up and the sun's hitting a petroglyph. And you're like, wow. And so like, we, that, we didn't even know there were petroglyphs in this little cave, but it seemed like the groovy spot to, to camp, right? Nice, nice. And, and we had said that the night before, only to find the petroglyphs in the morning, like, oh, really, really, you know? Yeah. That was the fun part, then is you come back out, you know, you came back out, fully recharged, grounded, and now ready to help others that didn't get to have that experience. And so that, you know, that to me is, you know, one of those, when you talk about tactical, operational, strategic, that's what, hey, once a quarter, what's the type of event where it's a full 48 to 72 hour recharge. And then, you know, of course you have the events you do during the day, you have all kinds of different ones, but that one to me is a fun one where you can really go, wow. You know, and 
the most humbling thing you'd think. It was the amazing teachings and lessons and spending our life working it. And everyone, to include myself, came out and said, wow, not being attached to my phone for 10 days. I realized like this is how I'm supposed to wake up. This is how I'm being when I'm not fragmented. So some of the most basic components of the reset are the are the most profound. Actually, can you speak more about the camps that you guys run? Uh, they'd be great for people to know that there is there are opportunities if they want to take advantage of these kind of experiences that they can work with you guys in this space. Yeah, did it. You you, you were one. Sure, I mean, you, you you just got it. The you know, kind of like what that seven day experience of the canyon is. And really we kind of walk it through similar to spiral dynamics. The first day you get to make fire and then it's like how you build communities and then you continue to you know, increase in complexity and then kind of build it to where that culmination of day four. And then now you're reintegrating it. So the fun thing about the canyon is you go back into the world. And so, so, you know, that's one example we have up in the summer, you know, following the hydrologic cycle, the snow falls in the mountains, comes down, and then, you know, that, that's the summer gathering that we flow camp in the summertime, where now you can have larger numbers of people. The canyon is obviously restricted like 15, where you can have 50 plus that will gather in the summer together for the summer celebration. Nice. Is there a website people can check out to learn more about these experiences? Yeah, just uh, flowgenomeproject.com. And nice. then... And then there's a tab for trainings and, and next events. And so, yeah, as Kurt was describing it, like summer is our kind of biggest gatherings because that's kind of the obvious time for sort of festival and celebration. And then winter courses with the snowfall, right? Then into the then into um, into the canyons as the snow melts, right? And then into the ocean down in Baja and doing kite surfing, stand up paddling, free diving, all those kind of things. So we just kind of move through the ecosystem and where the snow rain weather water would go through that year and just kind of just keep the seasons and and then provide that for people who want to plug in for all of it and those are their kind of quarterly booster shots um, or want to just parachute in for a specific one they're you know most most excited about that's that's awesome now, Jamie, you talked about the triangle, catharsis, the esthesis, and the communitas. Can we break those three down? Because at the beginning of this conversation, I, I mentioned that people should be walking away with, hey, they should, they should have a basic understanding grasp or at least a tease around. Here's about a dozen weird things that I mentioned. So here's an opportunity to kind of plug those things into the into the triangle, including nitrous oxide and Churchill, one, two, three of God, and psilocybin, um, Female eject, uh, female uh, uh, um, orgasms, and transcendence, <laughs> transcendence, all that kind of good stuff. So let's start with catharsis. Why? Why is that important as a as a for the globe for people to, to be able to have experiences of catharsis for healing? And what are some of the things that can induce those experiences? Yeah, I mean, gosh, you know, I mean, I think, you know, back to the life's a bitch, right? I mean, I think just a lot of us uh, take hits along the way. And when we take hits that we can't metabolize or mend in real time, they show up in our bodies, brains, you know, minds and hearts as trauma. And typically, um, you know, the, the old joke of hurt people hurt people yeah. is often true. We're, we're, we're least resourceful, least caring and compassionate, most reactive in traumatized states and there's been you know there's been tremendous additional energy 
in, and light shed on that in the last, you know, four or five years, right? I mean, trauma used to be a very, very niche kind of concept. You know, Tim Ferriss interviewed uh, our friend and colleague Gabor Mate and, you know, millions of views. Gabor's book in the realm, The Hungry Ghost, and the new one that he's working on, dive deeply into this. The, excuse me, the psychedelic renaissance and the MDMA and PTSD work that MAPS has been doing. This is, you know, the Bessel van der Kolk and the body keeps the score. There's been this tremendous surge in interest in like, oh my gosh, we're all kind of banged up and how do we heal better? And there's also been, you know, over-indexing on it and the total fetishization of trauma and triggers and I don't feel safe and microaggressions and a whole lot of things where, which I think actually diminish the profoundly important and very real, real traumas that are being experienced around the world, you know, outside college campuses, outside progressive cities and towns, you know, refugees and, you know, and displacements and civil wars and like real stuff. Um, so it's sort of both we're overindulging in it and sort of using it as an escape right now. Um, and it's also surfacing something that definitely is important and needs to be dealt with. So, you know, it feels like, um, there's a great phrase uh, from this fellow Martin Prechtel, who's a Mayan elder and, and poet, but he talks about the notion of undigested grief, like we're choking on our undigested grief. And I think you could see that in a lot of the culture wars of the last couple of years, right? There's tons of undigested grief. And it's not, you know, Charlottesville, there's good people on both sides, but, you know, to actually have compassion for people who are now in divergent camps is to say, well, there's undigested grief in Rust Belt, in, you know, in, right, not, not just kind of hillbilly elegy, but yes, that too, right, but the collapse of old life ways and industrial and extractive industries, you know, all of those kinds of things, and at the same time, tons of undigested grief and the legacy of genocide and slavery and the broken promises of a, of a post-racial society, you know, like, you're like, wait, what's happening here? So, you know, it's critical for us to, in, in order to be able to feel the real moment and be present to it to digest that backlog because it ends up mm -hmm. as numbing or body armoring or when you know, whatever take your sort of mm -hmm. your model but it's definitely not helpful <laughs> and so if we can learn to digest our grief if we can learn to metabolize it and there's often a relationship between a peak experience and a discharge of trauma on a neurophysiological level as well as on a emotional psychological level um, we get closer back to what um, a colleague of ours, uh, Ryan Darcy, who's a neuroscientist in Vancouver, calls a global system reset, specifically by a stimulation of kind of the cranial nerves, brainstem reboot, and sort of, you know, effectively an ecstatic discharge, zero out level set boot back up. He, he used the analogy of like when your computer's been open to laptop's been open for a week and you haven't turned it off and it starts glitching, power off that button bloop, and start it back up and things tend to work a whole lot better. Right. And that's true for us as well. And we now know the protocols of how to create that, how to simulate, stimulate that global systemic reboot and while that's clinical, you know, you can, it's all Western science and, and medical terminology and very specific measurements and imaging and that kind of stuff. It also correlates to most death rebirth practices in most traditions throughout all of human history that 
they're not content neutral. It's not like you just like whacked upside the head with a jumper cable and you, know, you wake up 45 minutes later and you get dressed and go back to your you know, commute, right? They're typically some of the most profound and inspiring interior experiences that we ever have. Highly generative, you know, both, both creativity, innovation, um, problem solving, all these things, not as a Silicon Valley, you know, lunchtime hack, you know, not that kind of a thing, but, but you like where the onion was like, you know, shamans, ayahuasca and shamans, like I'm coming down here to come up with my new app idea, you know, like that kind of a thing, not that, um, but, but a sense that, um, fascinatingly, some of the most rich information we appear to have access to comes from a correlate, a very specific spot of like low delta wave EEG activity. And, and so it's, it's the closest you can get to brain dead, like literally like 0.1 hertz to 4 hertz. So you're barely, barely having any brain activity at all. But what it feels like on the inside is inception. It feels like lucid dreaming. And, that, and then coming out of that experience often leaves us in a space of reset homeostasis like at least now i'm back to zero zero on my cartesian grid i'm not out in left field you know and, and like trying to compensate and that's that, that's what it offers right nothing more nor less just a place a chance to come back to center and begin again i, I do want you guys to talk a little bit more about the reboot some of the technologies because you, you mentioned mdma ketamine nitrous oxide their breathing practices there's an interesting tongue uh, <laughs> system, the electrical impulse for the tongue. But before we get there, Kurt, I have a question for you. Uh, Jamie mentioned body, or well, he mentioned armor, and I'm thinking like Reich in terms of body armor. And I have a friend who has a program called Armor Down. He helps veterans, combat veterans who armored up for combat, teach them how to armor down into civilian life. And, you know, as a combat veteran yourself, I'm just curious in terms of institutions, is there any effort either presently or thinking through in the future where they're helping veterans de-armor themselves? And I don't mean physically removing their body armor, but like the, the armor, because you have to be armored up for combat, I would imagine. But you, you don't want to be armored up and go back to civilian life and you're with your kids and your spouse and your family and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Are there programs that help veterans do that? And the answer is yes, everyone's trying and it's hard. And yeah. one of my mentors, um, Tom Crum was instrumental to me. I said like, I, yeah, I would, I'd love for you to come and speak to the command because, you know, I think a lot of people have post-traumatic stress disorder. And, you know, Tom was like, fantastic. I believe in post-traumatic growth disorder. Right. And so it's helping to, but the only way to get from one side of the chasm to the other is to, you know, go through that cathartic process of healing so they can get to a base where you can start to build again. I think a lot of times there is, there's a perception of, I need to keep on my armor. I need to have, you know, the perception that everything's fine and it's not fine. And, and, you know, the first key is going back to kind of what I touched on earlier is like finding the safe place where you can feel, you know, secure. And it, it comes from many different sources, right? Whether it's from, you know, your, your band of brothers, whether it's, you know, for me, some of the hardest times I remember Olivia Grace was, you know, two years old at the time. And I remember just coming home and like just big bear hugs, you know, for her was, was one of the components for me. I'm like, okay, like this little being is good, true and beautiful. Therefore, you know, I can go out and have confidence and we can create more of that. And so that, you know, that is a, 
each person is different. So when, when you say any individual program, sometimes it's hard because it's what's the unlock for each person. You know, that, that was the most interesting thing in leadership for me was figuring out like, likes, like. I used to show up always in one way. And then you know, if it didn't resonate for someone, I'd realize, oh, it's because I need to show up in the way that they can see, hear, and understand me. And so you know, each program comes down to where's that individual, where can they feel seen, heard, and understood? Where can they feel like they can be safe to be vulnerable so that they can get grounded and, and heal again? So I think many are trying. You know, the key is you know, the, the teacher doesn't appear till the student is ready. And I think one of the hardest lessons is shifting from I have to be okay and I have to always say I'm okay, which is kind of the perception of the military into, hey, I mean, that was that was the, the biggest transition we had to make in the SEALs was like, I need you to raise your hand and say you're not okay, because it's okay if you're not okay. It's not okay if you're say you've got it and you don't because we're, we're not going to look there because we assume you have that. And so that's that, that team concept when you realize if I really care about my team, then I'm going to say when I need help. And then that's part of the, where the healing process can begin. Thank you, Kurt. So can you guys walk us through some of the cathartic technologies as well as the stasis technologies um, that are out there, including, you know, drug sacred medicines is great. You can talk a little bit about that, but there's also some really interesting sex, breath practices, <laughs> other such things, the tongue technology. Yeah, I mean, I mean, they they often go together, right? So that, that, that techniques that precipitate or prompt a, a peak or a spike often kind of have that beautiful discharge reorg reorganization at the, at the bottom or at the back end, a kind of a refractory period. And there's all sorts of high-tech fancy pants ways to do this. You know, like never, if you, if you don't, if you're not dependent on co-pays and you can pay cash on the barrel head and, you know, you can get your appointment with a, with a functional medicine doc to the stars. Um, but for the rest of us, and that's, you know, and that was certainly one of the the design criteria for a meaning 3.0, which is if we're trying to do something that's truly global and inclusive, it needs to be available to the bottom 4 billion people, or it's not going to get us that far. And so if once you've accepted that, like it's got to be, you know, that fundamentally it's got to be open source. So it's not proprietary and people, people anywhere can tinker with it, add to it, modify it. And it's got to be scalable, which means basically cheap or free that guides you back to bodily functions because we've all got them. Right. And the strongest, the, the sort of the strongest like judo move or, or, or lever to, to, to move things or to pivot things on are typically things that are highly encoded or encouraged evolutionarily. You know, so if we don't do and we die kind of thing. And, you know, and two easy ones for that is if we don't breathe, we die. And if we don't procreate, we die. And so just right there, you know, and, and if we lose control or awareness of our whole metabolic kinesthetic support system, we die, right? So, so let's just, you could just start with those three of just respiration, embodiment, and sexuality, and realize that by changing the rate, rhythm, and depth of how we breathe, all the way up to potentially even doing gas assisted breath work so you're actually more like scuba divers and you're starting to swap out nitrogen for nitrous oxide or a nitroxygen blend you might swap out you might massively increase carbon dioxide and create something called carbogen which is 70 percent oxygen 30 percent co2 but it produces wildly different effects you can completely change consciousness even without the gas assisted that's kind of like fancy waistcoats but it's rad um 
even just hyperventilating, vagal breathing, super slow breathing, you can upregulate, downregulate, and cross-regulate your nervous system and your consciousness. So those are all super interesting. Um, and then in the embodied state, one of the interesting ones, and this came from, um, I think you mentioned it, that um, there was just a wild story. You wouldn't have found this in Wikipedia for a month of Sundays, but there was an underground sex club dungeon scene in Down by 9-11 in downtown New York in 2001, 2002. And it was started becoming frequented by a lot of firefighters, police first responders who had survived the Twin Towers. And that they were actually working with dominatrices to have what they called concerted beatings, which wasn't kinky sexy um, at all. It was, I actually need this amount of like nervous system stimulation in order to come back into my body after feeling trauma and survivor's guilt. So that, and this was in their own words, so that they earn the right to feel to be alive where so many had so randomly lost this and there's a researcher at the university of pennsylvania who, who i mean i didn't know this but he's like yeah he's like humans are totally unique in our ability to actually enjoy unpleasant things like spicy foods and horror movies and roller coasters and you know and and pleasure pain like like you're like you like and you can't get an animal to do that shit more than once you can bribe them you know you can make you can make it correlate to food supply or something else but like you, you they will not do it and we're unique in this potential cross wiring of pain and pleasure and then you can take that all the way to you know um how you know because look every life you know life's a bitch and then we die so you're like okay we know we're going to be experiencing trauma the question is what do we do with it and there's this rich tradition like th those first responders had just intuited their way into what is, as soon as you look at it, and this is kind of the, a functioning definition of neuroanthropology, is like, look around for anything that interests you that we're doing. And it seems like there's a there there, that there's a buzz around it, or there's a community of practice around it, or that it had, or it's growing in it, you know, in its scale of interest. And you're just like, okay, now look for as many similar things in the historical record. Where has anybody else ever done this across time and space? You know, and that's the anthropod. And then the neuropod is, so what do they have in common and what are the mechanisms of action under the hood that actually, never mind the stories that were told about it, like what is it, what actually makes it work? And that almost always yields these fascinating backstories. So then you look at the penitentes in northern New Mexico and like they've been doing, they've been, you know, reenacting the passion of the Christ. It still goes on in this rural place outside of Santa Fe and they, they get flogged with, you know, brine soap whips. They wear crowns, thorns, they carry heavy crosses. Some even get tied up and crucified on Good Friday. And there's this agony ecstasy element. You know, the same with the Lakota Sundance, the same with, you know, you know, the Spartans and the Feast of Diana, like it's always been this way. And you're like, okay, so that's, that is a beautiful way to deliberately and counterintuitively discharge pain by actually explicitly cultivating more of it. And you're like, okay, that, that's really kind of neat. Cause like most times when somebody is either self-identifies as traumatized or is, you know, part of a, a community or population when, you know, people are trying to help, they try and like, it's sometimes kid gloves, you know, like let's, let's wrap them in cotton wool and don't trigger warning here, trigger warning there. Like let's avoid any more traumatizing. 
and that's beautiful. It's a nice way if you can get it kind of thing, right? But there might also be like that sense of like, oh, actually, there are more powerful ways. And, and you know, the, the probably the most, um, I don't know, I wouldn't say the most, but a, a sophisticated sort of sublimated example of this is Tibetan Tonglen meditation, which then says, I'm not going to sit on a cushion trying to get to my happy place or to emptiness, right? Or to any of those, you know, groovy, good feelings. I'm actually going to visualize my own suffering, inhale it, breathe it out, like actually metabolize it and then breathe it out as light or love. And if I can do that for my own heartbreak, heartache, can I do it for everyone I know? And I do it for everyone in my community or the world all the way out to all sentient beings everywhere, everywhere. And you're like, oh shit, how that, just that little practice, instead of me trying to shield myself from a dirty world, I now go hoovering up all the suffering in the world, right? Knowing that that is, that is my lead into gold, right? That's my, or, or, the, or the Rumpelstiltskin, right? Like I can spin it into something beautiful. And that fundamentally inverts our relationship to our own pain and suffering as well as to everyone else's. We seek, we cease to try and like bypass it, fix it, cure it, get past it, avoid it. And we're actually like, oh, I can welcome it. I can actually metabolize it instead. And so that, you know, the 9-11 first responders were doing a very physical version of what actually goes all the way up the stack into a profoundly sort of metaphorical alchemical practice if we, you know, if we choose to kind of cultivate that capacity. What I'd like to do is take this conversation from uh, individuals and small groups of people doing these practices and looking at institutions and systems. Because I would imagine, like, you know, if we are going to create 3.0 in a positive direction, you, the institutions and systems need to reflect new ways of thinking, integrating 1.0 and 2.0 into how they operate. Now, Kurt, you, you know, as a tier one operator, you had different ways of operating within big navy which is a part of dod but you still have to operate within institutional morass <laughs> bureaucracy big navy dod and i know you know um actually i think knowing you um jamie for 15 16 years and uh, conscious capitalism you know the the whole business world also large institutions slow to change that's why a lot of them die <laughs> you know so I'm curious on your guys' take, like, how do you imagine working with and changing institutions and systems to positively reflect what we have now been talking about for the past hour so we, we can go to 3.0 and thrive as a global community, not just survive as a small tribe and F everyone else? <clears throat> yeah, I think the biggest thing I'd add to that would be, like, if you said for someone who said, I'm, I'm in, yeah, I want to help become part of the change. What do I need to do? And my answer would be just get started, right? So like, yeah, it, it's fascinating. We can feel when something shifts to, oh, but what do we do at the institutional level? Is it fundamentally different? And yeah, you know, at the largest institution, the difference between like traditional kind of conventional units. And then when you get to you know, tier one units was before, if somebody said no, we'd say, oh, they said no. You know, and as I progressed in my career, it was if someone said no, then it was, okay, what's their address and how do we get to them, right? And so it's just, you know, fundamentally deciding I'm committed to the point where I'm going to go find the individual that is the representation of the institution and I'm going to influence there. So to me, it's, 
it becomes, you know, it's the same principles I would use inside of my family, but now it's applying them on a much broader scale. And instead of that learned helplessness of, of I can't change the world or I can't change the institution, it's yes. And there's one person that's come up that's inside of the institution that I need to get to that I'm going to be the one that gets there. So like to me, that's where it just gets started. And I love the compound effect of small incremental change over time. And so, you know, you may not notice it today, tomorrow, but over time, get that exponential increase and that's where like if we all do a little bit you know that that's the part that i think is the fundamental game changer thank you kurt jamie how about you especially having spent a lot of time consulting and actually kurt you too in the business space mm -hmm. yeah and i haven't come across anybody who's cracked that better than cut honestly i mean like hearing his stories of corralling three-letter agencies in war-torn regions and showing up in ridiculously humble service like literally taking out the trash to be part of the help to having somebody order like the guy who was this log jam loving chick-fil-a and getting a guy in virginia to come on a you know military transport with a bag full of chick-fil-a chicken sandwiches to like get to that guy to then <laughs> like human deeply profoundly humbly human and when get you know, 20 minutes ago said, I think love is kind of one of the simplest things to come back to. Um, I'm blown away that he got anywhere in any of those situations, which were hopelessly political, um, with all sorts of turf wars and all the worst things you could imagine about bureaucratic power hungry humans and somehow made magic happen, as you said, like at the human level. Um, I don't have anywhere near that skill set or that optimism because mm. <laughs> because I would say fuck the lot um, and, <laughs> and, and you know Bucky Fuller kind of 101 like if, you know don't try and change the system build a different better one and so you know my hat tip with all humility to um, Kurt's playbook on working within systems for powerful coordination that not even like it didn't exist prior, like he was stitching things together that had not been and and did that with the power of like humility, love and service. Um, so, yeah, I would say <laughs> and, you know, and in cases where that's not possible or you don't have that particular set of superpowers, then the criticized by creating, you know, like 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 yeah. go build the better thing and let that be a strange attractor that other people orient around because it works better. I love that. Yes. And because that's the most fun is how, how do I optimize what currently exists? And then we continuously did that. Like it was okay. When we ran into situations we'd never seen in the military before we said, okay, we're going to stand up a joint task force, which is one of the best from each. And we're going to try this. And if it works, it's going to become a new thing. And if it doesn't work, we'll take it apart and build something new. So I, I love the yes. And of optimize what's there. And if that's not sufficient for the challenge, then what would, what would new look like because it, it is fun to create something new and then from momentum pull the organization towards it instead of trying to lift you know and lift and shift the entire organization that's a great yes and love that all right so people are watching this listening to this and like okay i'm in i'm in let's let's build 3.0 what are their next steps what would you recommend the viewing and listening audience do to support this global effort to create 3.0. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, we have playfully, like in, in the book is instead of the 10 commandments, the 10 suggestions, you know, like, cause no one's gonna listen to anybody anymore. So like, here's just some ideas. 
Um, and, and one of them is, um, you know, in fact, several, one is do the obvious, right? Like just do the obvious, like all the self-help personal improvement stuff. We, we all know it and we've all known it, you know, like sleep more, move often, eat real food, get outside, make love, be grateful, grieve fully, you know, like, like simple shit, like human stuff, do that. Boom. Now you've got tons of time and money back. You know, next one, don't do stupid shit. So don't end up in a cult, a body bag, a loony bin, right? Bankruptcy court, divorce court, right? Jail cell. Like, don't do those things because then you bugger it up for everyone else who's playing with more powerful techniques of transformation. And then like, let the mystery stay the mystery. Like, it's so tempting when people have peak experiences to come back hair on fire with absolute false certainty as to what they've seen and what it means and almost always what their special role is in it all, <laughs> you know? So like, if we just said the mystery is deep and vast, right? Um, and then we could just kind of let the burning bush burn. Then we all get all that time back too, right? And then that, and you know, and, and 80, 20 work to broke. That I said, that sense of like, hey, we're never gonna be perfect. That's a horizon line you can always sail towards and never arrive at. Um, and we get 80% of our initial, of, our, of, our, of the goods of what's true and useful out of the first 20% of our peak experiences and seeking. So like take that, it's like never go past your second shot of heroin. It's all downhill from there, friends, you know, <laughs> but that second one's amazing, right? So, so like know when to say when on your state seeking, right? And, your, and the pursuit of your perfectibility and just those handful just suddenly get you back to like, what Kurt described about team guys, right? Like I don't need, like, a, like I come off deployment, I wanna fix where I was shot or what got ripped or torn. And then the moment I'm back to 80% threshold, I wanna go back because I have a mission, right? Not, I decide I'm gonna get into cupping and get my yoga and massage certifications, you know, and, and, and you know, and start becoming a sound bath facilitator. You're like, no, no, I have a mission. And that's what calls me back to the world, um, right? And so, I, I think the, you know, meaning 3.0, like inclusive salvation, right? If we're using that as our yardstick, uh, I would say it's the same advice that Kurt offered, which is just start by starting, like break bread, you know, do like, then we, we have a, a book club, like literally like here's just a book club in a box. Like if you want to read this book, like here's a fun way to do seven weekends, you know, with friends. But even if you don't read the book, like four of the examples are, drugs over dinner, death over dinner, sex over dinner, God over dinner, which is modeled on a, a, a Ted chef who's a friend of ours. And he has this, it's a worldwide movement, death over dinner and drugs over dinner. We just added the other two, but it's like a question at the appetizers, a question during the main course and a question at dessert. And then just Jeffersonian style, you know, one person talking, everyone listening. So like six to eight people, and you can have these beautiful gatherings, pondering the richest questions, you know, of our lives and experience, like just start. And I think that even as we get overwhelmed by the global meta crisis, right? And I don't know where to start and everything has to be super scalable or it's not worth doing, you know, like, and so I collapse again into overwhelm and, and grief. Like it's actually, no, no, I, I think actually paradoxically, the best thing we can do right now is regress into healthy tribalism. And the only <laughs> healthy tribalism I'm aware of, I mean, I'm open to, any other suggestions, but that there's not, you know, race-based, ideologically based, religion or faith-based, or, you know, the old tribalisms, and even the new, even the current ones, is just bioregional tribalism, 
right? Like like we live here, we give here. This is this is our watershed. This is where our food comes from. This is where our kids go to school. You know, these are our neighbors. And you know, for anybody that's experienced fires, floods, power outages, extreme winter storms, we've all been experiencing these things in more or less intensity lately. And the ability to become more resilient, become less fragile, become more trusting of the people we live next to. I mean, that, you know, it's an, it's an inversion of that old kind of, you know, Subaru uh, Prius bumper sticker of like the um, think globally, act locally. You know, you could almost be like grieve globally, thrive locally, <laughs> right? Like open your heart to the wound of the world. There's a lot going on right now that we should feel and be paying attention to and bearing witness to. And right, we can't just be crushed by that. The best thing we could possibly do, um, even in this realm, in this world of completely extended, hyper-efficient global supply chains and the optimization of everything that's non-local is to actually fucking put our roots down and, and, and re-knit community fabrics uh, in ways that support our actual lives you know, in our actual families and communities. I love that. So um, great suggestions, guys. And if people are listening and viewing this and they're like, oh, I actually want to work with Jamie. I want to work with Kurt. How do they find out more about what you guys offer? Where do they find your book, Jamie, in this case, et cetera, et cetera? Probably just our email, <laughs> Kurt or Jamie at flowgenomeproject.com. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Yep. You just did that. So there you go. They're, they're out there. The world. Um, yeah. And, and um, I mean, you know, the book, the book's easy and available um, at recapturetherapture.com. You can get it on Amazon, do whatever, but there's a whole open source set of tools yeah. that yeah. are just mm-hmm. there for folks to, Oh, look at that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like so a field guide on all the models, a lot of the concepts um, that book club in a box, like things that we just wanted and hoped that people could make good use of. Um, and then, you know, we do a, series of almost like you know like martial arts you know yellow belt blue belt brown belt black belt kind of trainings that lead all the way up to those adventure courses and and summer camps but also start with digital digital trainings there's a digital course like a six-week course that's a complement to the book and it helps you know choose your own apocalypse like what do i think is going on for me and what steps should i take alchemist cookbook what are the tools and techniques of healing and inspiration and connection and then ethical cult building, like how do I actually, how do any of us participate in or lead communities of practice that don't fall into the ditches, the well-worn greasy ditches that, that, that so many, so many have. So hopefully that, you know, the intention is for this to be an open source operating system and that people can get a, get their hands on it, start playing with it, creating what's novel, helpful, true for them. And then you know, and then share, share the successes um, and help them propagate. That's fantastic. Well, <coughs> Kurt, Jamie, appreciate your time. This has been a fantastic conversation. And I definitely encourage folks to uh, check out the book, Recapture the Rapture. Check out Flow Genome Project and go train with these guys. Take care, fellas. Thank you. Thanks, man. <laughs>